You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Thank you, Anders, and welcome to all. It's, it's really good to be able to, uh, together, together with those that name the name of Christ all around the world. Uh, all around the world, there are uh, believers gathered on this special day. And uh, we're just one small flock among, among all those, those gathered millions and millions of, of Christians. And uh, so it's, it's, I think it's very appropriate to think of that as, as uh, I begin to read our, our text for this morning, which is precisely about Jesus' prayer for uh, those who he would indeed be saving. And, and he's praying for specific things for them. And so them, that them includes us, and we're going to see that here in just a moment. So let's uh, uh, open our Bibles in uh, John 17, verse 20. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 17, verse 20. And this text says, and remember, this is all, this is, uh, all of this is a prayer. It's part of uh, the prayer that begins at John 17, 1, the entire chapter is Jesus' prayer. So he says, or he prays, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you did send me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known that the love wherewith you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, we are reading... And today we will focus our thoughts on a text that you inspired through your Holy Spirit so long ago. And it's a prayer that, Lord, we just marvel because this prayer has already been amply answered. And, and we know that there are parts of it that are still future. And you will continue to answer that prayer that your son made. Thank you that he ever lives to intercede for us. Father, help us to understand what it is about you as Father, what it is about He as Son and about your Holy Spirit that brings about the glorification of your people and the unity of your people. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
two surprises in this text. One of them, I think you would, is uh, the, one of the surprises to me as I studied it uh, is the glorification of saved people. And uh, we rightly make a great emphasis on the glory of God. He is the one and only uh, true and living God. There is none like him. He's the only one who's self-existent. He's the only one who is the source of all righteousness and holiness and all that is good. And so we rightly acknowledge that he is to be glorified, and his glory is unique. And yet, Jesus here says in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Now, I, will, I want us to reflect on that in just a few moments as we continue. Interesting. Why would he say such a thing? That he is giving glory to believing sinners. Very interesting. And the second thing is that probably won't be such a surprise, but it could be, is the idea that God delights in sharing and loving. And I say it might not be a surprise. Again, it might be. I, I, uh, we worked in a, uh, my wife and I worked in a context for almost 20 years where, um, in Argentina, where uh, the view of God the Father was of, uh, some people actually said it about in these words, well, it's better that, it's better that um, I just kind of try to avoid him. Try to avoid him. Uh, sometimes they, how would you describe God the Father? Mm, malo. He, he's bad. He's just, you know, he's really out to get you. And uh, so in that context, then it, it, I guess it puts a new light on the idea of since uh, mom is usually nicer than dad, it puts, it puts the whole idea of praying through the virgin in a new light, doesn't it? If you think that the father is bad and that you're probably going to have to get somebody to kind of get on his good side. But it isn't just in that religious context. Uh, all of, in, in every, in every um, culture, there is a view of God, whether uh, whatever title is given to God, whatever name is given, there's some view of God. And uh, and so you have um, mil multiplied millions in the world for whom uh, God is not a person. I'm referring to uh, Hindus and Buddhists for whom there is no ultimate God at all. And so if that's ultimate reality, then your idea of how the universe is going to treat you and how life is going to treat you, what you can expect and what your destiny is, is going to be completely different. And so as we look at this text, what we're going to see is that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is going to uh, be for us an incredible source of hope and of assurance. So uh, I just want to, before uh, beginning to, to go into this particular text, what I'd like to do is do a quick review because we've come to the end of this prayer in John 17. And uh, I just want to summarize it. And uh, verses 1 through 5 the Son prays to be glorified as he brings to completion the work he has already begun, which is that of giving eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. First part of the prayer. Next section, verses 6 through 12. The Son prays for those whom the Father has given to him and that just as they have begun by accepting the word about, that is the true word that he has given them about the Father, that they will be kept, that is preserved, in that true word about 
the father. And then verses 13 through 19, the son tells his father that he is indeed coming to him. That's an anticipation there of his death his, and uh, his ascending to the father and prays that the disciples will be given what? Full joy, complete, uh, complete joy, perfection, protection from the evil one, and that they will be set apart or sanctified to be sent into the world just as the son was sent. And that's verses 13 through 19. And so now we come to our, our text for today. And so Jesus, in verse 20, expands the subjects of his prayer. Because up to this point, he has prayed for those whom you have given me. He has prayed for those whom he has already kept, whom he has already taught. He is praying for his disciples. But now in verse 20, I don't just ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And so he is anticipating the point at which the disciples will uh, be testifying of him and, and there will be believers, those who will believe on me through their word. So uh, as we have looked at the, the prayer up to this point, everything that's true that Jesus said in the prayer, I guess everything he said was true, uh, but everything that he has said, every principle, every, everything we've learned about God does apply to us. But in terms of the focus of the prayer, up to this point, he was praying for those who had already uh, been with him. But now at this point, he's universalizing it. He's saying, now at this point, uh, Father, I am praying for the rest of the church, the, the, the gathered and multiplied church through all generations until my second coming. What, an, what a tremendous uh, thought that you and I are included in this prayer. And so, and so we are. And so he prays that. He's praying for, for us. And his prayer in verse 21 is that, what? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, I've heard preaching on this text many times. I remember the first time I remember hearing something about this was probably when I was in junior high or high school. And um, the church has justly been berated and uh, taken down to size and condemned for divisions, for fighting, for struggles. And, um, and we know that that's a reality. My own feeling is that normally when this text, uh, most of the time, we see, we, we, we see, the, we see the symptoms of the disease. And we are rightly told we should be one, and that's true. Um, and so there's, on a worldwide level, there's initiatives, um, ecumenical movements. Um, there are, there's been an ongoing dialogue between uh, Catholics and Protestants uh, for, uh, well, it's been going on for centuries, but there's been a very active initiative for the last 20 or 25 years or so. And um, it's good to talk. Uh, it's good to seek unity, and yet uh, this is not going to accomplish what needs to happen here because the kind of unity he's speaking about is a unity that only comes as we are one in the way that the Father and the Son are one. And so he is here asking that, praying that 
we will be one in the same way. Now that uh, is something that goes far beyond um, organizations or confessions or statements. That is an actual, um, it refers in, to an actual being included in the very love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father. And uh, so it goes beyond uh, something organizational. Uh, so at that point, um, he says, he then gives the reason why he hopes that, not he hopes, why he prays that that will indeed happen. Um, and uh, so I'm going to read the entirety of verse 21. It says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the result of that kind of a unity, not the unity of drafting documents and, and um, selling buildings and all getting together in one big, one big auditorium, um, not that, but the unity that comes because we actually are uh, share a oneness with the Father and with his Son, that kind of unity will come so with the purpose that the world will believe that he has been sent. Now, I, I ask myself, uh, is this kind of unity even possible? Um, it's, it's really interesting when you start to look at it uh, from the standpoint of, of missiology, um, when you consider the multiplicity of languages, um, by some counts, uh, 15,000 languages in the world, uh, and who knows how many cultures, because we, it's usually legitimate where there's one language spoken, there's at least one culture, if not several subcultures. Um, geographic distance, climate difference, political barriers to people even having the possibility of getting together. What kind of unity is possible in a world with so much cultural, linguistic diversity, in a world where there is so much political conflict, uh, economic conflict? How is unity even possible? It seems to me that what Jesus is, is praying here is for the kind of unity it's the only basis for real true unity and that is that we be one in the Father and the Son and I might add in the Spirit uh, Paul mentions that many times and that is the kind of unity that can never be imposed from above but it's the kind of unity that I think I hope that all of us have experienced at one time or another where we find ourselves all of a sudden uh, next to a, a Christian that we didn't even know before. And uh, the, the blessed experience of perhaps uh, coming up to someone who's a believer and that perhaps that believer only knows a few words of English and maybe I don't know any of his language. Or that believer goes to a church of another denomination and we have differences with that denomination. And yet, at that moment, we come together. And what is it that unifies us? It's not our ethnicity. It's not the language. It's not the denomination. But it's the acknowledgement that we really have the same Savior, the same Father, 
the same Holy Spirit unites us. I want to suggest that is the only basis on which unity will ever be, will ever be found in the church. Jesus goes on to pray in verses 22 and 23. He says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I'm going to add to that. <laughs> that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity. Now here's a, here's a puzzling statement. I have given them the glory which you have given me. So we look at what Jesus did uh, as, we, as we think of what the scripture teaches about what Christ did. It says... Um, in Hebrews 1, that through him God made the worlds. Um, it says in Romans 11 that God dwells in inapproachable light. His glory is such that it is absolutely inaccessible to us. We could not survive a face-to-face -face contact with the fullness of his glory. It says that Jesus shared that glory with the Father from before the foundation of the world. Um, Jesus never sinned. His holiness is absolute. It's unquestionable. So that kind of glory is not attributable to us. So what is the glory that he has given to us? So let's, let's explore that a little bit more. I want to uh, start out with a, a text that will even probably intensify the, intensify the, the dilemma. Well, look, let's go to Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. This is Jehovah speaking. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And yet... If we look at verse 1, we see him praising his servant. 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And now let's read that again, but this time with the consciousness that when he says, I am the Lord, he is saying, I am the Lord and the glory of which I am speaking is the glory of being the kind of God that does the things that I just got done telling you about. I am sending this, my messenger, my chosen one, my servant. 
and that is what glorifies me. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Graven images can never bring about salvation. He is the God who delights to bring salvation. And what I would like to suggest is that when we, when we look at this prayer, we see that God is sharing, has created his son. I'm sorry, not created his son. God has begotten his son. His son is eternally begotten. His son is the eternal reflection. That would be a heresy. He did not create his son. But it does, the scripture does speak of him as eternally begotten. The father delights in beholding his image in the son. And that has been an eternal um, uh, relationship, a delight in sharing, a delight in loving. And that love between the Father and the Son has always been in the presence of the Holy Spirit, who in some way uh, exalts and um, we could even say inflames that love, even uh, so, that that, so that that love, that delight in giving, is an aspect of God from all eternity. So that when he creates, it's not as though that was a quirk one day he decided to create. And when he, and when he uh, plans to uh, redemption before the foundation of the world, it's not a quirk. It's not, well, I could do it or I won't do it. It's an expression of his triune nature as a God who relates and a God who loves. He was under no obligation to do it, but he did it because that is indeed in his nature to do so. And so we see that this is a God who delights to show mercy. So what is the glory? Um, if we look at John 1.18... We see a little hint of this. John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And then John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the, world in, send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The father who delights to love and to give to such an extent that he sends his son into the world as a sacrifice for sins, always holy, always just, and yet at the same time delighting to give. And the glory that we have then, and I want to go back to that, is the glory not of anything that we have done. It is not a glory in which we may be compared to God. It is not a glory which would consist in our, in some way, doing in a little way what God does in a big way. It is nothing attributable to us at all. It is a glory that is the glory of being included and loved and adopted by the Father with Jesus as our brother. You say, what? Hebrews 2.11. Hebrews 2.11. Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. 
that is one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In verse 13, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Uh, during the Sunday school hour, we're going to look, uh, part of the Sunday school lesson will be about our adoption as children of the Father, which in one sense makes us brothers of Christ, not on our merits, and not that we become gods in any sense of the word. But adoption is not by the will of the child. Adoption is by the will of the father, in human terms of the father and the mother, but in this case of the father. And so his adopting us, although unworthy, is such a thing, that, is, such a, uh, is such a marvel, that it brings, it includes us in a glory which is we don't deserve and which was not of our own making. And I think that's what Jesus is referring. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And once again, the same result, that they may be brought to a perfect unity so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. The, I don't know how many of you have had the experience of, um, of um, praying, uh, Lord, I want, to be, I want to be a testimony for you today. And then you get mad at somebody in your family before you leave the house, right? Um, you get mad at somebody uh, when they cut in front of you and they, they drive like a jerk and, and you say, oh, I just, and, you, and you're mad. And, and, you, um, and you do something else unthoughtful on the way. Maybe you run over the neighbor's cat. And, and so you, you get there and you, you pray, Lord, make me a testimony today. And you say, wow, I think I've already ruined this day. I think I'll just pray about tomorrow because I really can't testify today. I, I, I just, I'm just totally out of the, I'm out of the um, wave, out of, out of wavelength here. I just, I'm not going to be able to do this. And, and we forget that the, that being a testimony is, a, is always, it never is anything except the testimony of a saved sinner. It's not, it's not that there's people that get really good and then so everybody just pays attention to them. Uh, it is the testimony of those who point to the one who dispenses grace, who gives grace. And they point to the one through whom he gives grace, to his son. And it isn't about impressing the world will not happen if we manipulate our image and if we polish our faces and wear the right clothing and, and always act perfectly. No, it's nice. But the reality is that God works through people like me and people like you. There's another kind of glory, though, and that's the glory I mentioned at the beginning. There's a glory that can be shared, and that's the glory of being included in God's family. There's another kind of glory that can't be shared because it only belongs to whom it ought to belong, and that is to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we come to that in verse 24. It says, uh, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
So this is to be distinguished from the kind of glory that comes just because God says, hey, you're included in the family. That's one kind of glory. There's another kind of glory that Jesus refers to where he says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw a man to myself, and I will glorify the Father in doing that. That's in John chapter 12. That's another kind of glory. That's the glory of the Son's obedience, even to the point of death. But here we're talking about yet another kind of glory, and that's the glory, it says, that, that he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. And so here he's saying, I want those who believe in me, I want them to see that glory. And Jesus' prayers are always answered. That they will be with him where he is. That they may behold my glory. I want to suggest here, and I, there could be differences of opinion, I want to suggest here that the fulfillment of this prayer is still largely future. Because remember that in 14 through 16, he spent ver uh, chapters 14 through 16 in John preparing them for his departure and saying, when I depart, it is good actually that I go, he says, because if I go, I will send the Spirit. And you will experience a fullness in your uh, experience of Father and Son by the sending of the Spirit that you could never experience if I did not send the Spirit. But here he's praying that they will be with him. So I, I take that to be a future, a future reference to his uh, eternal, eternity and glory when we are with him um, in heaven. Now, as it happens, we do see anticipations of that. And again, during the Sunday school hour, I, um, we get little glimpses of that eternal glory, that glory that's so bright that it just doesn't really even fit um, in our sordid and, and, and uh, rebellious and dirty world. It, it isn't something that we see all the time every day. But there are times when he does manifest that glory. And we see some indications of that in the New Testament. But that's not most of the time. It's not that, 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 that wow, uh, fall on my face glory. Uh, there's another kind of glory, which is the glory that comes from being sent and being servants. And he's also praying about that. But this, I think, is the kind of glory which he had before the foundation of the world and which we'll really be able to appreciate when we're with him in glory. It's the, it's the kind of glory that we see in Revelation 4 and 5. I, I mentioned that um, in the previous message. Let's just go there. We're not going to read all of Revelation 4 and 5, but I just want us to remind you of a taste of that. Chapter 4, and a vision of God sitting on the throne. Uh, Revelation 4, 3. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone. And we kind of lose this because we don't, at least I don't live in the world of gemstones. But anyway, jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were tw 24 thrones and 24 elders. And then it, it goes on, and it, 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 there's a, and it, when you get to uh, verse 8, you get something very much like Isaiah 6. It speaks of four living creatures with six wings, and they uh, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. 
And there's just a constant praise of that. But then we see, oh, and then verse 11, Worthy art you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, we see the presentation of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that's verse 5. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And he looks for the lion, and what does he see? He sees a lamb, verse 6. He looks for the lamb, lion sees the lamb, in verse 6. I saw with the four living creatures and the, and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And at that point, then he takes this book, which we won't, we won't go into the book right now, but verse, uh, chap, verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so there the, the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified for his act of obedience, his sacrificial death, and his making of us to be priests and a kingdom. And then in verse 13 of chapter 5, we see that equal glory and honor is given to the Father and to the Son. Listen to this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Father and Son receiving equal glory, equal honor, equal attribution. That hasn't happened yet. And I think Jesus is here praying for something that he wants us to experience. One of the objections that I have heard of, of, of in regard to worship and to heaven is this idea that it's kind of this sit there and be passive sort of thing. And I think what we're here is we're given an image of um, of what it is to be in the presence of God. I think it would be a mistake to take that necessarily as a statement of the only thing we will do. I think that the, the as we look at um, the doctrine of creation and as we look at uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament about the restoration of the earth, the new, after all it is new heavens and new earth, I think it is, even though scripture says little, it is safe to assume that uh, if God makes us to be beings who love, he makes us to be beings who are willing, who choose, he makes us to be beings who act, who feel, who enjoy, who do things, in some way, we will be doing what we were designed to do, but ever with an attitude of worship. And I don't doubt that there will be, uh, as it is here in Revelation, tremendous worship services. I don't know how all that's going to fit together. I don't need to know. All I need to know is who God is and that he is good and that he will indeed uh, fill us with a fullness of joy.
But we're given an anticipation of what that ought to be like when we are in this life, because um, knowing that that's the kind of God we have. Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, he said, uh, 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which good, is good and acceptable and perfect. And he goes on then to say that that acceptable act of worship will manifest itself in service. And so as we look at the rest, the entirety of the rest of uh, Romans 12 is about our service. So that worship and activity go together. Worship is not passive. But when we look at the glory that is given by God, we would have to say that there's no inspiration that comes from us. There's no motive energy. There's no power. And it is that, that apprehension, that appreciation, um, that grasping of who God is in Christ that moves us to worship so that every act of our life can be an act of worship. Am I there yet? No. But the more I'm reminded of that, the more I find myself uh, catching myself be honest, catching myself in, in, in things and attitudes and things I think and say, um, where I say, you know what? That is completely opposite to what you want. And forgive me. And then sometimes I even see improvement. This is a progressive thing. This is something that will not be completed till we're with him in glory. But his glory is a life-transforming glory. Even though, even though it is so far beyond us. He shows us enough so that we can experience that, that change. Finally, verses 25 and 26, he says, uh, Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And so this is a uh, reminder, he already has communicated the truth about who God is. The world rejected. The world is that system dominated by Satan and populated by sinners as yet unsaved. And it refuses to know God. That's the world. But there are some, as he has said, who have been given to him by the Father, those who were born not of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of the Spirit, there are those, and he acknowledges that. And so he says, I have made your name known, and I will continue to make it known, that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. And so here we have um, the love of God expressed for us in Christ. Uh, notice that in some of the earlier verses, we have what we would call um, a, a, a mutuality, that is, we see a, a, a back and forth between the Father and the Son. Uh, notice in, in verse 21, uh, that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Mutuality. It's a back and forth thing. Um, verse 20... Um, I'm missing the other verse. Uh, but in this, but there are also two mentions where it's 
it's not a back and forth. It's where the Father is in the Son in, this, in, in, in such a way that the Son is able to be in us. And so we have that in verse 23. Um, verse 23, I in them and you in me. Father in the Son, Son in us. Verse 26, Um, the love with which you love me may be in them, and I may be in them. This, this is a reference to the sentness, to the, the, the Father sending the Son, so that the Father and the Son have a mutual relationship. But there is also the relationship of being sent, in which he was sent uh, not only to die, but to be raised from the dead, and ultimately to live in us, to dwell in us. A great hope for the Christian. So in conclusion, just want to uh, bring, think uh, just some thoughts about, uh, some conclusions about, about our text. Uh, first of all, the first two thoughts I want to bring about, in, uh, reflect on in this conclusion are, are specifically about unity. Um, unity does not come about by human imposition, but it does come about by our position in the Son. And so we enjoy unity with the Father and with the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. Our position in Christ. And so we can have an intimacy with God. This is, this is an astounding thing. Absolutely astounding thing. I, I think we, we tend to cheapen and, and, and downplay things that because they become commonplaces to us. But if, if we were to try to take the perspective and look across the, the whole run of human history, or if we were to just take this day, this one day, and extend our gaze across um, the multiplied billions of people around the world, uh, the idea that we can actually have an intimacy with God the Father, that we can know that he actually cares about us, um, that Jesus has sent his spirit, that his spirit dwells in us, for us, it, it can become a ho-hum thing. But when you look at the alternative, a distant, uncaring, unapproachable God, or in the case of the atheist, a reality in which there ultimately is no, there is no God. And it's just you and me and the universe. And when we die, it's all done. It makes a huge difference what we think about God and, and to know that we are beloved in the Son. And so that's what our unity is founded in. Our unity is founded in, in that stunning realization. And then we're also united in sharing a glory. We share the glory of being loved by God. And I, I think it's... It, as I, I look at my own life, um, there are, in the abstract, um, in the abstra abstract, I love everybody. And in the abstract, um, nobody else's sins or errors um, are any worse than mine. But in, the, in concrete, in the day-to-day, -day, it's easy to 
it's easy to look at our brother or our sister in the Lord and say, well, um, let's put them in categories. Um, that's, um, that's one, that's a troublesome one. That's, um, that's a carnal one. That's, um, that's one that um, is, just doesn't get it. And, and, and so we, we, we tend to, instead of th saying, you know, this person is one that actually shares the very glory of being adopted by the Father, it's easy for me to say, well, you know, doesn't quite, this person isn't quite like I want them to be. But wait, that wasn't the criteria that God used when he saved them. He accepted me and pardoned me with my unloveliness. And so we're united. We're, you, th these people sitting around you, if they know the Lord, they are glorious. Wow. Children of, children of the Father. Which leads to a further re reflection. And that's God's delight in loving and giving to us, in forgiving, in making known to us his Son. Uh, that is the true and original fatherhood. Uh, fa human fathers all fail. And God did not reveal himself as father because he first made human fathers and said, that's a pretty good illustration. I think I'll use that. Totally the opposite. He is the prototype, the original, of what it is to be a father. And uh, fatherhood with a capital F. And all of us human fathers are father with a little f. Sometimes very poor reflections. And yet, we don't have to worry about him ever failing us as father. Fourth reflection. All of eternity will not exhaust our enjoyment of the glory of the Father's love for his Son. That's what he prayed. I, I pray that they will be with me to see the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And finally, uh, that promise. Remember that uh, Jesus says, I will keep them. Uh, earlier in, in the prayer, he says, I have kept them by their word. If my faithfulness to God depended on my goodness and on my capacity to be steady. Woe to me. Woe is me. But he says here, I will keep making your name known to them. He will never stop. And of course, that is why he had, one of the reasons he had promised the Holy Spirit in, in John 14 through 16, we have several promises of the sending of the Spirit. And so we have that assurance. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we go forth, Jesus' prayer for you and prayer for me is one that absolutely will be answered. There is no doubt about it. And if you're in Christ, all of these things apply to you. So let us, as we, as we go forth from here, remind ourselves of that and, and live in the light of those truths. Sing like